John 21. That'll be our text this morning. John 21, I'd like to start in verse 18. John 21 and verse 18. Jesus here is speaking to Peter, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So Peter has just been given some bad news about what he's going to endure for Jesus. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells him he is going to suffer and die a martyr. Not one to take bad news lying down, Peter looks around in verse 20 and he sees John. And he says in verse 21, well, what about him? Sort of like a child frustrated at their their mom and dad's punishment of him, he looks around at his brother and says, well, what about him? He asks about John's fate. Doesn't he have to suffer too? What about him? And about the time John is ready to tell Peter to zip your lid... Jesus says this to him in verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus warns Peter basically to mind his own business. He says, Peter, if I want John to live forever, to never die and to never suffer, how in the world does that change your responsibility? Would it help you sleep better at night, Peter, if I told you your brother was going to suffer just as much as you were? Uh, Don't miss the irony here. The irony is pretty rich, considering that when Jesus suffered, Peter was nowhere to be found, uh, consumed with self-preservation when Jesus suffered. But now when Peter is foretold that he will suffer, um, he is very eager for John to be right there with him and John not to be preserved. Jesus tells Peter, basically, keep your eyes on your own work. You follow me. I think what Peter shows here is a tendency that we all, we all understand intuitively. And that is the, the temptation to comparison. Lord, what about this man, Peter asked. That's a comparison question. And I want to show you it's really a toxic sort of comparison. He attempts to grapple with his own disappointment by tearing someone else down. So I want to talk today about how common and how toxic this sort of spirit is. Thankfully, Peter, I think, will grow out of it in the book of Acts. But I do want to see how common and how toxic this sort of thing is. Someone has once said, this is one of those quotations that's attributed to every major quotation person, Winston Churchill, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. But someone somewhere has said, comparison is the thief of joy. That comparison is the thief of joy. And I want to think about that this morning. What the quote means, comparison is the thief of joy, is... A sure way to make yourself more miserable is to spend your life rubbernecking other people's lives and to ruminate on all the unfairness you perceive when you look at other people and you think about how your life isn't as good as theirs and you ruminate on that all day, every day. It's a sure way to have your joy stolen from you. 
As kids, we notice who has the best toys. As adults, we notice who has the best toys, who has a nicer place than us, a nicer house than us, who drives a nicer car than us, who goes on better trips than us. We, we compare our skills and our talents, our aptitudes, we compare those to other people's. Sometimes we compare our sob stories to other people's, and we get sort of a satisfaction when ours are a little more, little more sob-worthy. We compare our physical appearance to other people. We compare our intellect. We compare our sense of humor. What I want to show you this morning is this is not an innocent practice usually. Our comparisons tend to either breed jealousy or condescension because we resent those who come out better in the comparison. We're jealous of those who have more than us, and we tend to belittle and condescend those who come out worse than us in the comparison. And so is this what God wants from us, to look around at other people all the time and either feel superior or inferior all the time, to either be despondent or proud when we look at other people? I want to confront this issue of comparison this morning. I'm going to go ahead and show you what our three points are. Number one, I want to talk about how we are tempted by comparison. Number two, I want to scrutinize the logic we employ when we, when we do comparison. And number three, I want to think about how we can let go of comparison. How we can do what Jesus told Peter when he said, what is that to you? You follow me. So, to begin with, let's talk about the temptation to compare. Peter is really concerned about the fate that awaited John. He'd just been told what awaited him, and he thought that somehow knowing what would happen to John, I don't know exactly what he's thinking, you know, maybe John will be tortured too, fingers crossed. I don't know what he's thinking, but somehow he thinks knowing what would happen to John would change anything about Peter. So my question is, what are the things we are commonly tempted to compare with others? Where does this temptation tend to rear its head? I have a few ideas. Number one, it rears its head when it comes to money and possessions. This one is easy to succumb to because, of course, money and possessions are so quantifiable. They're so objective. We can literally tally up the numbers and figure out what is really kind of an interesting phrase. We can figure out our net worth. And then we can take our net worth and we can compare it with someone else's and then we can make some sort of a judgment, I guess. Sometimes I'm afraid, though, we take that word worth and we apply it not just to the money but to the people. And so I am worth X amount. And so I I am worth more than a person who has less. Not just I have more, but I am worth more. And I'm worth less than this people who has more than, less, less than this person who has more than me. Therefore, I'm less worth as a person than they are. We can fall into a tailspin of jealousy when we see other people prosper. If our career doesn't pay as well, if a financial downturn ruins the gains we've made, if we can't afford what someone else has, it can really ruin us. and It can ruin our relationship with that person. It's particularly troubling, I think, when we assume that the other person doesn't deserve what they have. There's this great psalm, Psalm 73. At some point, we'll we'll just talk about that psalm. But Psalm, Psalm 73 tells a story of a guy named Asaph. And Asaph looks around at the world in that psalm, and he sees a bunch of very evil people who are also very prosperous. He says this in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's the first 15 verses of that psalm. Verse after verse in that psalm, Asaph describes how he's being eaten up with envy and outrage at all the prosperity he sees around him. In the words of Peter, Lord, what about this man? And what about this man? And what about this man? And what about these people? I think it's also worth pointing out that while we are often very occupied with fairness, 
when someone else has more than us, and fairness is a really big concern, we're usually not nearly as concerned with fairness when we have more than someone else. Fairness seems to only become really important when it's unfair to me, not necessarily when it's unfair to someone else. So we're tempted there, money and, and possessions. Two, we're tempted to compare skills and talents. God has given us differing gifts and different, differing aptitudes. We are not all the same. We do not have all the same interests, the same aptitudes, the same skills. And God seems to revel in the diverse abilities of people. You know one of Paul's favorite ways to talk about the church is to speak of it as a body. A body has different members with wildly different roles and wildly different abilities, and yet they all work together for the same purpose. And so Paul loves to point out how a hand and a foot are totally different. They're on different ends of the body. They serve totally different roles. They have almost nothing in common, and yet, what do they do? They don't bicker and fight about how they're not identical. They all work for one purpose. So it is with the eye and with the ear, which serve the exact opposite roles. One listens and one talks. And so they don't bicker and fight about which is better, listening or talking. They just work together for a common purpose. And Paul says that's the way the church is. We're all very different, and we should all revel in that and all direct our own unique, our unique talents to one end. God seems to glory in diversity. Paul, Paul puts that diversity up as one of the great virtues of the church. God glories in diversity. I dare say we do not glory in diversity. We tend to rate our talents on some invisible scale of priority. So someone has more marketable skills than I do. And someone has talents that, seem, that tend to receive more praise than my talents do. Someone has talents that seem to, be more, seem to be more useful to the church and get more praise within the church than my talents do. And So what could be an appreciation for the very gifts God has given, what could be glorifying God because someone else is, using what, is doing what they can to serve Him, what could be glorying in all that easily turns into resentment. This one is an interesting one. We are often tempted to compare scars and hardships. Scars and hardships. In a strange way, I think you'll recognize this in other people, maybe in yourself. Sometimes it makes us feel better if we compare our scars to someone else's and if we feel like ours are deeper, we get a sort of satisfaction out of that. I've had a harder life than you. It's sort of a badge of honor. And, and if someone mentions some difficulty or pain, we move quickly to one-up them, or at least tell them about how we've had the same sort of thing and maybe even a little bit worse. If someone speaks on, on the subject of suffering from Scripture, perhaps we demand their credentials. What do you know about it? We become resentful of someone who has an easier life, who's had an easier life than we have. Someone who's grown up with more, someone who's had a happy marriage, happier marriage, it seems, someone who seems to have floated through life without any major major heartaches and struggles. This is really, I think, Peter's issue. Like Peter, we want God's assurance that they will have to suffer as much as we have. What about them, Peter is saying? This comparison game is destructive. First of all, it turns away our attention from our discipleship. Instead of preparing ourselves for the tasks God has assigned us, instead of living the life that we were put in this position to live by God, we get busy measuring our life, our tasks, against what he's asked of others and where he's put them. We're more committed to comparisons than we are to Christ. We're more fo focused on John's future than we are our own. Jesus' words to that spirit were these, You follow me. Which brings us to our second 
Our second point, I want to scrutinize this. I'm not just arguing today that these kinds of comparisons are are bad or unhelpful or, or even sinful, although I think they are, but I'm not just arguing that. I'm really arguing they don't make any sense. It's not just that, the, that they're bad, it's that they don't make any sense. It's that they're dumb. When we scrutinize these, com- these comparisons, we often do logically. Where we say to bring in an objective third party who is a very good judge and give a ruling on our feelings and trace out the logic of them, I think we would usually discover how silly we are being. Let's do it with Peter. So Peter has heard about his own awful death as a martyr, and he wants assurance that somehow John's fate will be equally difficult. That'll make anything better. And Jesus doesn't indulge with any of that. He doesn't go on. He doesn't say exactly what John's life will be. He just says, if I wanted him to live forever, what would that be to you? But he doesn't actually say what will happen to John. But we do have some idea. We do have some idea what happened to John. John outlived the rest of the apostles, and John lived his last years in exile. Now, here's a question. Knowing that that would happen to John... Would we really say John had a better time? Think of it. John lived long enough to see the church's hardships go from localized persecutions in Judea, which is where it starts in the book of Acts, just little here and there pockets, some synagogue leaders get worked up in this little town. That's how it begins. John lives long enough to see that antagonism against Christianity go into the very halls of power in Rome, and the Roman government and Caesar himself begin to hate and persecute the church. John lived long enough to see that happen and to experience that. John lived long enough to see many of his brothers in Christ, all the other apostles, he lived long enough to see all of them die, usually very horrible deaths, and to be left alone among Jesus' apostles. John was eventually barred entry from his native country, exiled, separated from all the friends and family he ever knew. Now, no, John was not martyred within a few years as Peter was. But was John really living on easy street? Would we look at John and say, just be green with envy, look at how good he had it? See, our comparisons usually start to look sillier the more we scrutinize them. I don't want to do that with the examples we've given. So, first of all, I want to say there's more to the story about money. There's more to the story about money when we're tempted to compare ourselves to other people. We tend to think, when we do our little comparison game, we tend to think, that having more money would just be wonderful and would solve all our problems. You know where we did not get that idea? We did not get that idea from the Bible, and we did not get that idea from God. Jesus repeatedly warns us of the dangers and temptations that increase with money, not decrease. It can become our master. It can become our treasure. It can keep keep us from Him and His kingdom. It can make it as difficult to get into the kingdom as as it is difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle And it can be taken from us in a flash. Paul tells Timothy that the desire for riches, this is 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9, brings a temptation. Brings temptation. He says it brings snares. He says it brings many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says it brings all kinds of evil. He says it pierces people through with many pangs. There are dangers and burdens and sins associated with money that can hijack our spirituality and bring us untold pain. If we look at people with more money than us and we only ever get jealous of them, I have to ask you, where do we get that idea? We didn't get it from God. Perhaps those who appear to be so wealthy, perhaps they're the ones who are really suffering and miserable. To the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, Jesus says this. He says, you say I am rich. 
I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here is a rich group of people who Jesus says, you have no idea just how wretched and pitiable and poor you are. And on the other hand, he says to another church in the beginning of Revelation, the church at Smyrna, in Revelation 2 and verse 9, he says they are grappling with tribulation and poverty, hardship and poverty. And he says to them in Revelation 2 and verse 9, you are rich. And so Jesus says to the rich church that you are pitiful and poor. And he says to the poor church, you are rich and blessed. When you, le- when you learn from God, you see there is more to the story about money. And our comparisons are usually not taking into account what God has said about these things. Two, there's more to the story about talent. We usually assume if we had more talent that it would just be an unqualified blessing. If only we had the gift of public speaking, the gift of leadership, the gift of generosity, implying perhaps there was more we had so we could give more. If we only had those gifts, we would do wonders. If we had the gifts that guy has, we would do so much more than he does. And yet Jesus operates on a system he describes this way in Luke 12 and verse 48. He says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much is required. Of him, much is required. There is a greater accountability that comes with greater giftedness. The parable of the talents shows that the five-talent man has to do five times the work of the one-talent man. And what would the church be, to use Paul's favorite analogy, what would the church be like if God made everyone the same, if God made a body where every single part was identical? If all were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if all were an ear... Where would be the ability to speak? Here, here's, a, here's a horrible thought. Here's, one, here's a thought that will ruin the rest of your day. Sorry in advance. What would a church be like that had nothing but preachers? What would a church be like that had nothing but preachers in it? 100% of the members were preachers. What would that church be like? Have you heard the saying before? Preachers are a bit like manure. You, uh, you pile them all up together and they're pretty stinky you spread them out, and they can do some good. Right? Where would be the sense of hearing if all all were a mouth? There is more to the story about talent. And if we thought in God's terms about these things, I think we would not be nearly as consumed with our comparisons. And three, there's more to the story about scars. There's more to the story about scars. We look at someone we, we think we know, and we size up how hard their lives have been compared to mine. We sort of make a grief resume. We have our own, and then we have theirs, and we stack them up. Have they dealt with death and loss? Have they dealt with severe illness? Have they had accidents? Have they had experienced job loss, depression, divorce? And we move down the checklist, and if they haven't been through as much as us, we assume we've bested them in some way. But is there more to the story? Might it be that perhaps it's not that their grief resume is shorter than mine, Might it be that their suffering has just not been as loud as mine has? What if the person we're we're condescending and thinking ourselves as as going through so much more than, what if the person we're condescending is, is, is really just unprepared to speak of abuse that they received as children? What if that's the case? What if we just don't know someone well enough to know their struggles with addiction in the past? What if their marriage has endured remarkable difficulty that we're just totally unaware of? What if they've been through some serious trials and, and it's just that they weren't just trying to solicit sympathy 
as much as we were. Maybe that's the case. You know, Jesus speaks of rain and floods and winds that test the quality of our lives. In Matthew 7 and verse 25, when he speaks of building our house on the rock or on the sand, and he talks about how the storms come and they beat against the house and they test, they test the structure of it. And part of what he's saying is that testing, that difficulty is going to come to everyone. Should we assume that because we're less familiar with the storms of others that they have none or that ours are much worse? And even if we could objectively prove somehow, I don't know how, but if we could objectively prove our scars were deeper, our hardships were tougher, even if we could prove that, does that make me the winner in some sort of a competition? See, comparison not only distracts us from Jesus, it also contributes to a very critical and shallow view of other people. And there's something I think even worse than that. They're accusations usually, basically. They're they're accusations and attacks against God himself. So Peter asks, Lord, what about this man? He wants to know what Jesus is going to do with John. He's questioning, really, Jesus' fairness, Jesus' justice. Why am I having it worse than him? What about him? The sharpness of Jesus' response. He says, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? The sharpness of Jesus' response is, I think, a rebuke of Peter's whole mindset. What he's asking is, Peter, who's God in this relationship? Whose will is most important? Jesus says, if it's my will that he remains, what's that to you? Whose will is is the one that determines the outcome of things? My will or your will, Peter? Who's taking orders from whom? And so unhealthy comparisons not only usually make us bitter toward other people, they can embitter us toward God. And when we scrutinize them, I think we see they just don't even hold up. They don't even make sense. So let's, let's end with a constructive, a constructive point. How is it that we can let go of comparison? There's a refreshing simplicity in Jesus' instructions to Peter. He tells him, you follow me. He calls him to a simple Jesus-fo- Jesus-focused discipleship. He calls him to trust that God will be God and that my job is to just be the best disciple I can be in the position I've been placed in. So the question is, how can we let go of these comparisons and just follow Jesus? Number one, I want to tell us that we can see the value in our story. See the value in your story. Jesus has given Peter a tremendously important task. In the verses that immediately precede this interaction, verse 15... Jesus gives Peter his marching orders. Verse 15. When he finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He is giving Peter a commission. I'm giving you marching orders. It's to feed my sheep. It's it's to minister to my people. And even, even the knowledge of his martyrdom in verse 19, he describes it in these terms in verse 19. He told him this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. That was part of the work he was to do even in death, to glorify God. In other words, Peter's death was not senseless. It would not be senseless. It would be a final act of faithfulness by which he would glorify God. Peter has work to do. His role is not in any way diminished by the fact 
that it will have a difficult ending. If anything, it's enhanced by it. He's going to glorify God by the kind of death he is to die. What Peter needs to learn is that Jesus has given him plenty of work to do, and he needs to focus on that, not on Jesus' plans for John. And so to move, move on from the comparison game, we need to learn to celebrate and embrace and rejoice in the unique skills we have, in the unique life we've been given, and the unique opportunities our story contains. Jesus has given each of us opportunities to glorify God just like Peter. We each have our own set of stories, our own memories, our own friends, our own spiritual strengths that God can maneuver into something beautiful and use to glorify Him. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21 that all can be vessels used for honorable uses for the Master. That God can work through us He can work through our poverty or our wealth. He can work through our talents, be they five or be they one. Even if we are very different from other people, we need to learn to appreciate where it is God has planted us and to bloom right where we have been planted. Number two, acknowledge all your blessings as gifts. Acknowledge your blessings as gifts. Comparison usually leaves us with a very warped view of the world. We only ever see things that are not quite right instead of all the things that are. James told us that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the source of every good gift in our lives. When we are always thinking about all the things we don't have, when we're always thinking about all the gifts we haven't been given, we are forgetting about all the gifts that we have been given. Acknowledge all your blessings as gifts. Number three, question your anger. Question your anger. Just because Peter feels indignation about his lot compared to John's doesn't mean he should. Just because he feels angry doesn't mean he has a right to be angry. Jesus says, what is that to you? That's a demand to scrutinize his outrage. Reminds me a lot of Jonah. Jonah is angry with God for being so merciful to Nineveh, and God asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Hint, the answer is no, it's not right for him to be angry. When the plant God made grow withers and Jonah is angry again, God asked him, is it right for you to be angry with the plant? The answer is no, it's not right for him to be angry with the plant. Is it right for you to be angry? It's a question we must always ask ourselves when our anger is aroused. It's easy to allow perceived inequities to fester and grow into malice toward others and even disenchant us with God. But is that right? Do we really deserve better than others? Maybe actually we deserve worse than what we've been given. Are we really concerned about fairness? Or are we really just concerned that we get what we want? Are we right to be angry? Scrutinize that outrage. Scrutinize that. Does it hold up up to logic? And number four, look back to Jesus and follow. I want you to notice there's really a, a key movement in the interaction in John in John 21, when you imagine the uh, sort of stage directions, where it is people are looking, I think there's a lesson here. So this is verse 20. After Jesus tells Peter of his martyrdom, verse 20, it says, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And verse 21 says, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? 
the text says Peter literally in verse 20 and 21, he turns his eyes away from Jesus. He turns his eyes away from Jesus as he's giving him his, his commission to go and feed his sheep. He turns his eyes away from Jesus and he begins to look at John. Which is, by the way, a movement that has happened before in the Gospels to disastrous results. Peter stops looking at Jesus and bad stuff starts to happen. Remember the story when Peter's walking on the water toward Jesus? The moment he takes his eyes off Jesus to look at the waves, he begins to sink. And here, when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and begins to look at John, what happens? He begins to sink. Looking at King Jesus, pursuing him more and more, is more important than any trial or any other person and what may or may not be happening to them. Notice, twice in this interaction, Jesus simply tells Peter, verse 19, you follow me, and again in verse 23, you follow me. And let me say this too. When Jesus calls Peter to all of this difficulty, to this martyrdom, he is not calling on Peter to do anything, to do anything that he himself has not already done. When, when he calls Peter to martyrdom, he merely calls Peter to go where Jesus has just gone. And though it taxed Jesus, Jesus did not lament the work the Father gave him. He didn't resent all the people around him who didn't have to be crucified. His eyes were focused on the Father and the Father's will for him. And when he calls Peter to come and follow, he merely asks him to follow in his footsteps. And he calls us to do the same. Jesus wants us to keep our focus on him, not on everyone else and their lot and their tasks. And so whatever we might think of others and whatever we might think of God's dealings with them, Jesus challenges us with these words. What's that to you? You follow me. So is there someone here this morning who needs to take up Jesus on his words? So stop worrying about everyone else. Stop embittering yourself or stop condescending other people with your constant comparisons. And fix your eyes on Jesus and to pursue him where you are. Maybe there's someone here that realizes that's been a real issue. You want to repent. You want to focus your life on him. If that's your need, come forward now as we stand and sing.